0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For today's show, there were no movies that were released brand new in the theaters. There were quite a few movies that were actually released on streaming, but... I was only able to see one of them, but the good news is that I actually got to see something I've been meaning to review on this show for weeks. And that is the Oscar nominated shorts for live action and animation. I did not regretfully get to see the documentary shorts, but I will see that this week and I will review it for you for next week's show. But the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is the only feature film That I saw this week and that movie is turning red. This is the latest movie from Disney Pixar. And I have the idea that Disney Pixar did actually intend to release this movie in theaters, but it might've been because of the Omicron variant a couple of months ago that they they decided not to, but it is available for streaming on Disney plus. And all you need is just a regular Disney plus, uh, subscription. I almost said prescription, All you need is a regular Disney Plus subscription, not the Disney Plus premium, which Disney Plus generally has, where in essence you pay $30 to see a brand new film. I am very happy that Disney Plus didn't do that for Turning Red, particularly because I don't want to fork over $30 to see a movie, unless I get a a large drink and a popcorn and maybe even a couple of hot dogs with it, but that's not going to happen on streaming. So... For Disney Pixar's latest film, this is about a 13-year-old girl named uh, Mylon who turns into a giant red panda whenever she gets too excited. This is the directorial debut of Domi Shi, and I have the feeling that this is semi-autobiographical, but Domi Shi is uh, a 32-year-old... director, a, a movie maker, I should say, who is a native of uh, China. She was born in Chongqing, and she actually won an Oscar back in 2019 for the best animated short film, uh, Bao, which in a lot of ways, Turning Red reminded me quite a bit of Bao, and I didn't re- realize that the same person behind the scenes, particularly the director, created both movies, but it makes some sense because both films, even though the former is a feature film and the latter is a short film, are all about Chinese-Canadian women. And it has a a lot to do with a mother-child relationship as well. But in this film, the young Chinese-Canadian girl um, whose name is Mylan is... 13 years old in the eighth grade and having a bit of a difficult relationship with her mother Ming, who is voiced by Sandra Oh, and that relationship becomes quite a bit difficult, quite a bit more difficult when in addition to all the other adolescent awkward stages in which Mylon goes through, she realizes a little too late that she's part of a curse that's been put on her family, which turns her into a large red panda. Now, I don't know if the red panda is a mythical creature in Chinese folklore or if it's an actual creature. I didn't know pandas could be red, and plus, the creature to whom Mylan turns into in this film looks like a giant fox. And that is explored in this film, but um, it actually uh, takes place. This film not only in uh, Toronto, Canada, which I believe makes it the first feature film from Walt Disney, not to mention Disney Pixar, to be to take place in any part of Canada, let alone Toronto. But it also, interestingly enough, takes place in 2002. And I think it was actually a very good move for this film to take place in 2002 because in this film, a lot of kids, a lot of people, see mylan turn into a giant red panda. And it helps because in 2002, the smartphone hadn't been invented yet. And most kids were, uh, most people were obtaining cell phones at that point. I do remember back in 2001 when I was in high school, how many uh, scenarios probably wouldn't have happened if I had a cell phone. And yeah, some things were... Cell phones certainly made things more convenient and they also made things a bit more complicated in various respects, but it was a very wise move to have this film take place in 2002 for that reason, because if this took place present day in 2022, all the kids would have had smartphones and all of them would have been filming Mylan turning into a giant red panda. And I think from there... You could have created a story where the government, particularly the U.S. government, I don't think the Canadian government would do this, but the U.S. government would send some task force to capture this poor young girl and basically put her under the microscope for laboratory experiments. A little bit of an E.T. vibe there, but I think that could have happened, but it would have been a little bit more predictable. But... Turning Red, I think, not only had amazing animation as you would expect from a Disney-Pixar film, but it also had a really good story at its heart about the relationship between a mother and a daughter, particularly a Chinese uh, mother and daughter where, and I'm kind of sweating as I'm uh, telling you this, but there is a trope in Hollywood films. I don't know if it's... Uh, The similar kind of trope in Chinese films, but where the trope is that the parents, particularly the mother is very strict and expecting her child to be a straight A student. And I do get that feeling from this, this film, as well as several other films, particularly a surprising number by Disney itself. I don't exactly know how true that is to real life, but. I imagine that it probably is, considering that there were a lot of Asian people behind the scenes. After all, Domi Shi is a native of China, and she probably was raised in North America herself. And the story is an original story, not only co-written by Domi Shi, but also Julia Cho and Sarah Streicher as well. And I really enjoyed uh, Turning Red, not only for the unique characters, not just the character of Mai Li, but also the three girls who are her best friends. I did think the dynamic between her and her mother, uh, Ming, ranked true to real life and had a bit of universality to it, particularly if you're a child who's been raised amongst relatively strict parents not necessarily um, Asian parents. And I also loved the climax of the film that actually takes place at a boy band concert in Toronto from a uh, boy, a fictional boy band, which is called Four Town. And I don't know if this was explained in the film or maybe I wasn't paying extra attention during the scene, but despite the fact that the, bo- the boy band is called Four Town, there are actually five members of it. I don't know if that's ironic. It probably is. I might see the movie again to get that sort of explanation, um, about the, the name behind the band, but this movie in a lot of respects felt very true to 2002, not only in the technology of people having flip phones as opposed to smartphones, although it would have been cool to have seen some Blackberries there as well, but also some of the music that's incorporated into it made me kind of nostalgic about 20 years ago. But the point is that uh, uh, Turning Red is a return to form for Disney Pixar after a few relatively mediocre films over the last couple of years, but... I certainly enjoyed it, and it gets my rating of a knockout. You could draw some comparisons between certainly this film as well as the Academy Award winning uh, Bao, but I also saw some similarities between this and another Disney Pixar film, Brave, particularly the mother-daughter relationship, and also the fact that one of the characters turns into a beast, but... That doesn't take away from the film. I think it's a favorable comparison and a good parallel. And there is actually a theory going around the internet that the all the um, Disney-Pixar films take place in one universe, just not in the same time period. I'm not sure how true that is, and Pixar has not verified that, but Turning Red certainly has some validity to it, or rather it could easily tie into a perceived alleged Disney Pixar universe. I don't know if that exactly matters. What matters though, is that it was a very good fantasy comedy and it also had some universality to it, particularly if you've been raised amongst strict parents, like somebody who has might be hosting the show would have been. But of course I'm getting off topic. I like turning red and I probably will see it again very soon. And I don't see many other movies twice. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And I did not get to see a lot of feature films this week. Turning Red, the Disney Pixar film, was the only one. However, I did actually get to see two out of three of the Oscar-nominated shorts packages thanks to the Belcourt Theater here in Nashville, Tennessee. It is, hands down, my favorite movie theater here in Nashville, but since I lived in Boston for 11 years, my favorite uh, movie theater of all time is probably the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, Massachusetts. I miss it incredibly. I miss Boston uh, for a lot of reasons, although I don't exactly miss the weather, but The Belcourt Theater is very close to the uh, Coolidge Corner Theater, not only in my heart, but also the fact that it's an independent theater that is actually connected to the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, which I think is actually very cool. But anyway, thanks to the Belcourt Theater here in Nashville, I was able to see two out of the three Oscar shorts packages, and I'm going to review the first one right now in the category of live action. So there were five fascinating live action films that I saw. And the first one that I'm going to just briefly review for you, or at least give you the plot synopsis, is one that comes from Switzerland and it's called Alakachu, which is also known as Take and Run. And even though this movie was, I believe, filmed in Switzerland, or at least it was made by uh, Swiss filmmakers, it was actually it, it actually features a lot of um, actors who are not at least born uh, Swiss, but it was directed and written by Maria Brendel. And the star of the movie is a young actress whose name is Alina. Turdur Mamatova, and I am so glad I did not uh, trip over that name, but she is an Asian actress who's, who's actually making her screen debut in this film. So even though it comes from Switzerland, I'm not entirely sure if it takes place in Switzerland, but she plays um, a young woman who is trying to leave her small town life, and connect with a cousin of hers who has been banished from her entire family. And at first you think the movie is going to go one way, but then it goes an entirely different way when a young man and his friends actually kidnap this young woman whose name is Sazam and force her to become a bride for this man she doesn't uh, barely know, or rather she barely knows, almost doesn't know. And it, it gets very crazy and gets very paranoid. And there are ways in which you would think that she would get out of this situation, but her family actually doesn't end up being very much help. This is a movie that's only 38 minutes long, but you know, it's a great film when I just wanted to see more of it. So that is one of the films. Uh, its name is Alakachu, which is also in English is Take and Run. The second film is from Denmark, and it's a film that's called On My Mind. And this is a film that also is very unpredictable. It's about a guy who walks into a bar, and this is, um, as I said, a Danish film, and. There is a karaoke machine in the bar. He comes in on a Tuesday morning and he asks the bartender not only for a drink, but he also asks to sing a particular song and have it recorded when the owner of the bar is very reluctant to turn the karaoke machine on. So, where is this headed? You don't exactly know throughout the time he orders a drink and asks to. Uh, have the bartender turn on the karaoke machine so he can sing a particular Elvis song, the heartbreaking Always On My Mind, which is takes the namesake uh, for this short, which is the namesake for this short. So it's a very touching film, and it also is very heartbreaking at the very end. Why it is, I'm not going to reveal, but it's one of these films that certainly takes you. The third film is actually the only Oscar-nominated live-action short from the United States, and this one is called Please Hold. And Please Hold takes place in the not-too-distant future and deals with the frustrations as well as the potential nightmares of automation particularly when a young man's life is suddenly and inexplicably derailed as he finds himself at the mercy of automated justice. So basically this young man who's walking down the street on his way to work, minding his own business, finds himself getting arrested, not by a police officer, but by a drone. And the automation here is actually very scary. He is taken to the police station by a drone, and throughout the whole time, he is handcuffed, apprehended, and put inside a jail cell. He doesn't talk to any human being face to face at all. And the young man who's getting arrested here is almost a one man show, almost. His name is Mateo, and he's played by a young actor by the name of Eric Lopez. And this is a movie that not only reveals some of the frustrations of uh, automated bots, but also says that it's technology may increase, but it won't deal with the imbalance of our criminal justice system. The fourth film is a film called The Dress. And this is a film that is that was filmed in Poland. And it is about a woman who is a maid at a a rundown hotel, a motel, I should say. And she also happens to be a midget. And this woman, whose name is Julka, is played by a fascinating actress named Anna Dietzdezeka and I hope I didn't pronounce that name wrong, but it deals with her humdrum life as a maid at a rundown motel, and certainly a number of the people she encounters who basically just stay for a day and leave. Sometimes they're truckers who are just spending the night. Other times, well, you know it goes down at hotels. And she is struggling with her identity being a shorter person, than average, which I think some people in this country can relate to very much. And while the film did have pacing problems, particularly towards the end, I really did love the performance of Anna Diestoy Zika, whose name I, I hope I pronounced correctly, and I hope to see her in other things. And the final film that is nominated for Best Live Action Short is one from the United Kingdom that's called the Long Goodbye, and this actually has one of the few familiar faces amongst the nominees in this category. And this The Long Goodbye is a film that not only is um, co-written by Reese Ahmed, but it also stars him. Um, so for some reason, he's uncredited uh, as himself, but he plays a young man who lives in what is presumed to be London, England with his large Indian family. And at first he is going about his business and he is just playing with his uh, younger cousin while the news is on, but the news is actually foreshadowing what's going to happen next. And what happens next is very scary. As a matter of fact, there are three films, um, amongst the nominees that are, uh, that are scary and make you paranoid, but they are all too real. And even though the U S uh, live action nominated movie, please hold might not be real yet. You have the feeling that it will be, but Reese Ahmed is, uh, an actor's name who you might Not recognized instantly, but he's somebody who has actually been nominated for two Oscars. The first one was for Best Live Action Short this year, but last year he was nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for the film Sound of Metal, which was an excellent film, and he was great in it. He didn't win last year, but that film certainly put him on the map, and I'd like to see him in other films as well. Although he has been in some films that I've, I've seen previously before sound of metal. Like for example, he was, he acted alongside Jake Gyllenhaal in the film nightcrawler from 2014. He was also body Rook in rogue one, a star Wars story, which was, I think a decent star Wars film, but I didn't think it was as great as other people told me it was, but Reese Ahmed is certainly a great actor and he's probably the only familiar face to us audiences and maybe even British audiences as well. So this is the difficult decision of the five nominees for best live action short, which one stayed with me the most, which one did I think was the best? This is a very difficult decision because this is the best of the best of the best. Uh and live action shorts you don't really see very many places except perhaps Netflix but the way that Netflix's algorithm works people are either searching for feature films or TV shows they're not necessarily searching for shorts either a- animated or live action. And I think that does need to change. I mean, shorts.tv is doing a good job getting these out to independent theaters like the Belcourt theater. But again, it's getting exposure that way, but I don't think it's enough. But getting back to my topic, which one of these do I think is the best of the five? Personally, even though (laughs) all of the shorts are great, and I took something out of each and every one of them, I think that Please Hold is the best. This is the entry that came from the United States, and I just think that it is universal in its approach. I might be biased, considering this is the only film that was nominated that is from an American filmmaker, but I thought that it was both funny and scary, and I thought that Eric Lopez did probably the best acting job of all the other actors that were nominated in this category, and he expressed, I think, the most convincingly the frustration behind waiting and holding as bots are doing their thing. And it also shines an unintentional light, or maybe it's a more intentional light, on the prison complex here in the United States. Even though he's not technically in prison, he's in jail. But Please Hold is the one that I think should win, and I'm going to go as far as to say that it will win, too. But I'm not the greatest predictor, so don't take my word for it. (laughs) Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed the live action short films that have been nominated for Oscars this year, it's now time for me to get into the animated short films that were nominated for Oscars this year. There is one other category for shorts and that is documentary shorts. And I will see those this coming week and I will review them for you for next week's show before the week after where I do my special pre Oscar podcast. But I wasn't able to see the documentary shorts this week, but I'll save that for next week. But here are the nominees for best animated shorts. And I got to be honest with you. Three out of five of these shorts were actually more adult themed than I would have expected because a lot of times the animated shorts are the most popular for very obvious reasons. People love cartoons. People of all ages love cartoons, but I found it very odd. First of all, that there are no, um, a- animated short films nominated this year from the United States. There are no animated short films from Disney. Um, but there are, uh, I think the yeah, three out of five of them are actually in English. So I, I thought that some were better than others, as opposed to the live action shorts that were nominated this year. I did think that maybe one or two of the animated shorts were lacking, and not because they were more adult themed. So I'm gonna get into the nominees and give you a brief description of them. The first nominee is from is a collaboration between the United Kingdom and Canada, and this one is called Affairs of the Arts. And this one is about a an eccentric artist whose name is Beryl, who is uh back apparently. This is probably not her first appearance in a short, but it showcases one family's eccentric yet endearing obsessions with everything from drawing to screw threads and pet taxidermy. (laughs) It's very interesting. Sometimes it is very sick, but I loved the animation uh, of this short. It's uh hand-drawn animation. It's very rough animation, but I think that the franticness of the animation for this short certainly matches the eccentric uh, Beryl, who is um, narrating this short, as, as well as some of the crazy people in her family who are uh, very eccentric, and yet they have obsessions that are certainly very... Um, odd, but certainly make them human as well. And possibly even autistic, but the movie doesn't mention autism. This is a, this is one of the three shorts that is not for children, uh, because it has nudity and it has swearing. And also some of the obsessions, particularly the pet taxidermy might be frightening towards children, but I did enjoy this short, which came from, uh, a filmmaker, an animator by the name of Joanna Quinn, who has drawn and directed several uh, animated shorts over the last 20 years. And this is not her first time being nominated either. She was nominated last time in 1998 for a short film called Famous Fred. But moving on with the nominations, the second film that is nominated for Best Film animated short film is a film that comes from Chile and is called Bestia. And this is a film that is nominated um or the, that is animated I should say using very limited live action. As a matter of fact, it is a movie about uh, a morbidly obese woman by the name of Ingrid who is working in the Chilean Intelligence Directorate, also known as DINA back in 1975. And her relationship with her dog, her body, her fears, and frustrations reveal a grim fracture in her mind and in an entire country. And this one is very uniquely animated. It is very limited stop-motion animation. But what's interesting is that the Ingrid character in this film is actually what looks to be a porcelain figure that you would probably find in a thrift store because I don't know who exactly would buy this figure or keep it in their house, especially when she has these fantasies or maybe even nightmares that again are not appropriate towards children. There's one scene where she is playing fetch with her, her dog in her mind, and then she inexplicably chop chops her dog's head off. And The bloodshed is limited, but it's just very disturbing here. And not only is it disturbing, but I also thought it was the most sluggishly paced amongst the five nominees. So it's unlikely that Bestia will win the Oscar. But it was an interesting short, to say the least. The third Film that is nominated for Best Animated Feature is one that is traditionally hand drawn, and this one is called Box Ballet. And this is a film that is, I think, one of the best of the five, but I have the feeling that it won't win because Box Ballet comes from Russia. And even though it is not the fault of the filmmakers, what Vladimir Putin and the Russian army are doing to Ukraine, which is shameful and inexcusable. Box Ballet might suffer a backlash because of that. Granted, it is not the Russian people's fault that Vladimir Putin is the way he is. And from a survey I hear, millions of Russian citizens do not approve of Vladimir Putin taking over Ukraine. So, But I would probably say that Academy voters might not be kind to... Box Ballet based on its association with Russia. I'm not saying that's excusable. It isn't, but that's my prediction. But Box Ballet is a very fascinating animated short about a delicate ballerina named Olya who meets the rough, surly boxer Evgeny, and they live in the same building, and they form an unlikely friendship, especially since Olya is thin and a trained ballet dancer. In other words, she has grace. Whereas Evgeny is very muscular, very stoic, and of course doesn't really have that grace, probably more grit than anything. But the contrast between their worlds and their philosophies is so sharp that even the possibility of these two characters crossing paths seems incredible. And this is a film where... There's next to no dialogue. The only Russian you'll see is the one that is written in si- on signs or on products. But other than that, it's a film that's universal because there are almost no words that are spoken. And truth be told, I liked box ballet a lot. It was one of my favorites. The fourth entry in the nominees for Best Animated Feature is one that comes from the UK. And this is from Aardman Films which has won several Academy Awards, most of which for their animated shorts. And this one, very much like the Wallace and Gromit cartoons that have won Ardman films, their Oscars is one called Robin Robin. And this is a film that is probably the most appealing towards children is because box ballet, even though it's not inappropriate towards children, it implies uh, sexual and physical abuse, but it's still accessible. But Robin Robin is a film about a Robin that was raised by mice and doesn't know how to fly yet because mice couldn't exactly teach her, but she also forms not only that unusual alliance with mice who break into homes, steal whatever crumbs they need and leave, but she also forms a friendship with an eccentric bird with a broken wing that is a kleptomaniac and a hoarder. Now, in the short Robin Robin, uh, there is the, there's a cat that is the, um, antagonist of these, uh, birds and mice who is voiced by Jillian Anderson. And this, this other bird, which, um, is a magpie is, named Magpie, and he's voiced by Richard Grant. The voice of Robin, by the way, is a young actress I don't know named Bronte Carmichael, but she probably has a lot of acting experience in the United Kingdom, which means I probably haven't seen most of her films unless I've been watching maybe PBS uh, Masterpiece Theater. But I really enjoyed not only the story here, but also the animation as well. And the final film that is nominated for Best Animated Feature is one that's called The Windshield Wiper. This is a film that is made in Spain, and it is not one of those films that tells a conventional story about one particular person. It actually kind of tells several stories about several people, and it kind of cuts back and forth between a cafe where somebody's smoking a whole pack of cigarettes and a man poses an ambitious question, what is love? And a collection of vignettes and situations will lead the man to the desired conclusion. So at first glance, it looks like this movie is maybe CGI animated, but I have the feeling that director and writer Alberto uh, Mielgo filmed this with uh, an iPhone. And the reason I say that is because the movement of the characters seems all too fluid and even more fluid than rotoscoping, which is one of those uh, techniques that some filmmakers like Ralph Bakshi, some animators due to a fault, and others like Disney has done since Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and not, um, not excessively, but enough so that the human characters like Snow White seem particularly real. But this one I thought was, in my opinion, cheating a little bit because it, it looked to be that... Of course, I'm not against rotoscoping, but when this movie is done with an iPhone filter, or so it looks like, it, it doesn't look like the animators actually put in the kind of effort that the other four films and several other animated shorts did. But I thought it was interesting. I just don't think it'll win for best animated feature. Of these five, which one do I think will win? I would probably say... Robin Robin. And the reason is not because it is the most kid-friendly of the five. The reason is because, first of all, it has Aardman Studios behind it, which has already won several Academy Awards. But also, the stop-motion animation with this movie is nearly perfect. And it also takes into account that the creatures that are doing the stop motion animation look like they were made from arts and crafts from paper mache. But I think that really adds to the appeal of the story. Not to mention the fact that at 31 minutes, Robin Robin is the longest of the five nominees for best animated short. but it didn't feel like the longest bestia probably did. So I thought it had storytelling down. But I do think that Box Ballet might pull off an upset, but given the fact that it was made in Russia, and granted Vladimir Putin had nothing to do with this film, thank God, but the fact that it's Russian is going to damage its awards credibility quite a bit, particularly how mad Americans are at Russia right now. Not to mention, not only America, but the free world is really mad at Russia right now, and And even though it's unlikely that World War III is going to break out, who could blame them? But but if Box Ballet ends up winning, I I won't be disappointed because it is an exceptionally well-animated film. But I think Robin Robin will win and should win. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the films that I have to review for you for this show, it is now time for me to get into my next segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters and on streaming for the weekend of March 18th, 2022 and possibly the week of March 14th through March 18th, 2022 as well. So let's start with the films that are subject to being released in theaters. The first one is one that's called Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre. This is about a special agent by the name of Orson Fortune, (laughs) good name and his team of operatives who recruit one of Hollywood's biggest movie stars to help them on an undercover mission when the sale of a deadly new weapons technology threatens to disrupt the world order. Sounds like a fun film. It is directed actually by Guy Ritchie and stars the guy who made who Guy Ritchie made famous, Jason Statham in the lead role. And I think this is the first film that Guy Ritchie has done with Jason Statham since the film that came after Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, which I can't exactly remember the name. Snatch. That was the name. Snatch. Um, But I think, oh, actually, Jason Statham was probably in the film Revolver, which was also directed by Guy Ritchie and and co-starred Andre Benjamin, also known as Andre 3000. And man, that was a confusing film. (laughs) A lot of Guy Ritchie's earliest films had a lot of characters and certainly some influence from Quentin Tarantino, but unlike Quentin Tarantino, their stories were very confusing, but what they lacked in narrative structure, they more than made up for in very intriguing, very intriguing characters. So I'm hoping that Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre is not as confusing as Guy Ritchie's earlier films. But of course, we'll see. But Jason Statham stars in this movie ar- along with Aubrey Plaza, Josh Hartnett, and Carrie Elways. Aubrey Plaza, I've seen in various movies and TV shows recently. Josh Hartnett, it's been a long while since I've seen him. I, I thought he actually quit the acting business, but I guess apparently not. Maybe he's making a comeback. Who knows? And Carrie Elways, uh, we haven't seen for quite some time. But of course, Carrie Elways is always welcome back to the big screen. Uh, so operation fortune is a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show, the second film that is subject to be released in theaters. And it's probably coming to a theater near you is a film that is called X. And this is a film that takes place in 1979 and it's about a group of young filmmakers who set out to make an adult film in rural Texas. Back when um, young filmmakers um, and making pornographic films was actually ambitious, whereas now it's just aiming for the gutter. But anyway, when their reclusive elderly hosts catch them in the act, the cast finds themselves fighting for their lives. This looks like a very interesting film. It's brought to you by, or it's distributed by A24, which is an independent film company, very much like Bloomhouse Studios. It started out making very small films but has really made a profit in terms of its um, low-budget films that they've released and have been surprising hits. The movie stars Mia Goth, Jenna Ortega, Brittany Snow, and Kid Cootie. And I think this is Kid Cootie's directorial debut. And Mia Goth I've seen in a couple of uh, films that have come out over the last couple of years. There was a film she was in directed by Gore Verbinski, which was called a cure for wellness, which was a box office flop and was pulled from theaters after only about two weeks. I thought that film was actually very good and very freaky, but, uh, that's how Mia goth's face is familiar to me. But Regardless of how you felt about a cure for wellness, X is a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that might be coming out in theaters near me, but I don't know exactly if it will, is a film that's called Uma. And this is a movie about a woman named Amanda, who's played by Sandra Oh, and her daughter, who live a quiet life on an American farm, but when the remains of her estranged mother arrive from Korea and I do not envy the person who had to make that delivery, Amanda becomes haunted by the fear of turning into her own mother. And while I haven't seen any previews for this, because I avoid previews like the plague, um, I'm looking at the poster right now, and Sandra O oh looks more worried and scared than I'd ever seen her look in a film, not to mention she has a haircut like the woman from American Gothic. So the, the painting... So I don't exactly know how this movie's going to be. I'm very curious to see it. And if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. But the poster makes it look pretty terrifying. And Sandra O oh is not a woman who I would call terrifying. But another film that is subject to be released in theaters is a movie that's called The Outfit. And this is about an expert tailor who must outwit a dangerous group of mobsters in order to survive a faithful night. This movie stars Academy Award winner Mark Rylance, presumably as the tailor, and to see Mark Rylance take on a dangerous group of mobsters when he's not exactly somebody who is, shall we say, an action hero um, shoo-in, is actually probably more fascinating than seeing Jason uh, Statham take on the same group of people, because we all know what Jason Statham is going to do. Specifically, he's going to kick ass. Mark Rylance, on the other hand, I don't exactly know. The movie also co-stars Zoe Deutsch, Dylan O'Brien, and Jonathan Flynn. The outfit I would love to see, particularly because it has Mark Rylance in it, and even when he's in films I don't like, like Don't Look Up!, He's still a fascinating individual. So I will try to see it. And if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. I wish there was a theater somewhere near where I live which had every single one of these films ready to view. I would love that, but I'd also be way too spoiled. But the last film I'm going to cover that's been, um, that is subject to be released in theaters, is a film that's called Alice. And this is a film about a woman who is a slave in the antebellum South, so she's black, and she escapes her secluded plantation only to discover a shocking reality that lies beyond the tree line. The woman, who probably is the titular character in this film, is played by Kiki Palmer, who is a child actress gone good. And the film also stars Common, Johnny Lee Miller, and Gaius Charles. The poster looks fascinating. It certainly looks like one of those films that Pam Greer would have acted in in the early 70s. And I don't know if this is a film that's going to come to a theater near me. If it does, I will see it, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. (laughs) Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed, or rather, run down all the films that are subject to be released in theaters, I'm going to briefly go over films that are subject to be released on Netflix for the week of March 14th through March 18th. Now, there was one film that was released on Friday, March 11th on Netflix that was called The Atom Project. I've seen part of that movie, but not all of it. But I will review it for you a little late on next week's show. But there are several uh, films that are coming out for the week of March 14th through March 18th. I won't be able to see all of them, but I will focus for now on the Netflix originals. For example, on Tuesday, March 15th, there's a film that is uh, from Japan that is called Adam by Eve alive in animation. And I, I didn't mispronounce that. That is a L I V E not, um, not a a life in animation. So anyway, this film, which is known as Eve for short, actually, no, it isn't. It's, I'm sorry. I was looking at the poster, but anyway, It is uh, a combination of anime, live action, and music by cutting-edge artist Eve. Not the rapper, I might add. Um, This apparently is a woman who has taken the same name as the rapper, and this is her only um, acting credit to date, unlike the rapper Eve. So I think the uh, rapper, actress, and media personality Eve who we know from Rough Rider Records might take issue with somebody else taking her name. But this film actually looks very promising. It looks like all these elements, anime, live action, and music, all weave together into this dreamlike sonic experience inspired by the story of Adam and Eve. That is the sound of my mind blowing. I don't know if I will see this film, but I'll definitely try my best. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to be released on Netflix on Thursday, March 17th, is a film that's called Rescue by Ruby. This is a Netflix original that is an American film. And it's about a state trooper who, chasing his dream to join an elite canine unit, partners with a fellow underdog, clever but naughty shelter pup Ruby. And I think it was a wise choice to have this film released on Netflix because already it would draw comparisons to the Channing Tatum movie, Dog. And this movie looks a lot more family-friendly than Dog was. I don't know if it necessarily makes it better or worse, but it's a film I will try to see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show if I do see it. But the other film of note that is an American film that's also a Netflix original, is a film that's called Windfall. And this is a film that stars Jesse Plemons, Lily Collins, and Jason Segel. And this is a film I've actually heard a lot of things about. It's about a man who breaks into a tech billionaire's empty vacation home, but things go sideways when the arrogant mogul and his wife arrive for a last-minute getaway. This plot sounds actually very familiar because I ran this down on last week's, um, what's coming up next segment. I guess this was supposed to be released in theaters, but it was, uh, it's going to be released on Netflix and my God, is there a film that Jesse Plemons is not in? I mean, he's a great actor and all, but he seems to be in everything. He's also in the uh, best picture nominated the power of the dog, which I have not seen yet, But I will see it um, in the future, particularly when it gets re-released in theaters. But since I have a Netflix subscription, you and I can both see The Power of the Dog on Netflix, but my God, Jesse Plemons must be like um, Kevin Hart or Katherine Hahn in the sense that he is just in movie after movie after movie, and he apparently doesn't sleep. But he also keeps his eyes particularly closed, so maybe he's just compensating for not getting enough sleep. But... This movie sounds particularly fascinating. I don't know whether it's Jason Segel or Jesse Plemons who's breaking into each other's homes, but I am very curious to see this, and I will let you know what I think about it on next week's show, if I see it. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.